Happy 2021, everyone. It's been so loud right outside my window that I've resorted to recording in my closet. City living, am I right? With that being said, I'd like to say hi, everyone, and welcome to It's Only Sex Mom, a podcast where we talk about the science, anthropology, sociology, and psychology of sex. This is the next episode in the Virginity series, and today we're going to be talking about the influence of the evangelical church on American culture. This is a rabbit hole of information, so I'm going to be separating it into two parts. In this first section, we'll be discussing the history of the evangelical church's view on purity and how their messaging has been adapted to appeal to a new generation. This will probably be a little more dense and a little longer than my other episodes, so Make yourself a nice cup of tea and strap in as we dive into the world of evangelical purity. Since this is the fourth episode and I'm finding a pattern in my layouts, I can safely say that it has been tradition for me to start with the bare bones basics. I'm going to be honest, before reading about the evangelical church, if someone were to ask me what an evangelical Christian was, I wouldn't really have a clear description. So, for those of us who have heard the name but didn't know the practices, here's the summary. The evangelical group that is most prominent is the newest sect of Christianity here in the U.S. It was founded in 1948, which makes it less than a century old though it was created by merging evangelist groups that date back to the 1800s. The original evangelical church was founded by Reverend Jacob Albright in Pennsylvania and went through many splits and merges until we got to the modern-day National Association of Evangelicals. The core belief of the NAE is that it is your duty as a member to spread the good news of God to everyone. Evangelicals are also generally defined by religious and moral conservatism, fundamental beliefs in the Bible, embettering oneself morally, and political conservatism. Though, as Linda K. Klein states in her book, Pure, all of those definitions can vary. Either one can aspire to be more like Jesus in the sense that you intend to aggressively spread the good word, or you can strive to be kind and accepting. The sheer number of evangelicals allows for a wide variety of interpretations of the religion, In a 2015 Pew Research study, they found that one-quarter of Americans identified as evangelical as well as one-third of American teenagers. Though, as varying as the system of beliefs is, the loudest, largest group of evangelicals are white conservative Americans. This is the group of people I will be specifically talking about. The practice of how to worship does vary between the vast number of denominations of evangelism, but one message is pretty universal remain pure until marriage. One might not have guessed, but the first wave of feminism started with the evangelicals in the 1880s. There was a push for women to assume positions in the church of equal responsibility and power as men. Through the founding of the women's Christian temperance movement and the young men's Christian movement, women were able to be promoted to higher political power in the evangelical community. These two organizations were primarily established to be the promoters of purity. They argued that if people were promiscuous and were drinking alcohol, that would be detrimental to American civilization as a whole. The women assumed equal power. There were lines drawn between the two genders in terms of their contribution to society. 
Elizabeth Blackwell, an outspoken evangelical physician, stated that men and women's sexual urges were equal, but stemmed from a different source. While men's desires were rooted in lust, women's desires were inspired by their need to be childbearers. Women also took on the role of the security guards of purity. They were responsible for dressing and behaving modestly to protect their own chastity and also keeping their husbands in line. But with the establishment of muscular Christianity, women soon started to lose their power and influence in the evangelical movement. Basically, the previous evangelical group were viewed as betas, and muscular Christianity were chads. Muscular Christians didn't want to be perceived as weak or effeminate and wanted to promote the image of the ideal male. The establishment of the White Cross Army soon changed the White Cross League, called on men to become the chivalrous knights that were going to stay celibate themselves and, quote, respect women. The White Cross was the first to establish an official vow of chastity, something that will become more commonplace in the promotion of purity in more modern times. As the separation of the genders grew in the church, men and women were told to navigate their sexuality differently. Women were painted as the weaker sex who would succumb to vices of alcohol and sex easier than men. Even Susan B. Anthony claimed that prostitutes and working women had been influenced by men's natural inclination for immorality. Though men were held at an equal standard as women, the image that men were hardwired to be depraved was becoming commonplace. At this time, evangelicals weren't afraid to embrace the new scientific discoveries and theories to drive the purity message forward. They used the social Darwinism movement to prove that social order was necessary for the advancement of the human race. G. Stanley Hall, a child psychologist, published his work on the newly coined term adolescence in 1910. He defined it as the middle space between childhood and maturity where sexual and spiritual awareness begins. He saw this as the moment where instilling propriety for the betterment of the human race was crucial. The idea of adolescence became fundamental in spreading the idea of purity for the evangelicals. With every step forward in society, fundamental religion and conservative thinking wants everyone to take two steps back. With the end of World War II, young soldiers were returning to an era of booming social society. They came back to dancing, film, cocktail culture, and, most terrifying of all, dating. The Youth for Christ, aka the YFC, formed to combat the lecherous new generation. They used a tactic that modern-day purity events do. They appealed to young adults by holding large gatherings with music that sounded current to that era, followed by testimonials, a sermon, and an altar call. The YFC was there to protect an entire generation from promiscuous sex and alcohol, especially since this generation seemingly was both socially and financially independent. The most promising member of the YFC was Billy Graham. I'm sure a lot of you have at least heard his name in the air. His tactic to scaring the public of a national decline, mainly during the Cold War, is outlined by Sarah Rosliner in Virgin Nation. First, he lists and exalts the civilization's initial virtues. Then he describes the form of immorality that corrupted those virtues. Then he asserts a connection between moral decay and national decline. And finally, he includes frequent references to Sodom and Gomorrah. Something about that method sounds very make America great again, doesn't it? His most popular source of corruption was sexual immorality. 
which he believed was the biggest cause for delinquent youth. And, because of the relationship that Graham made between sexual deviance and communism, during the Red Scare, the government cracked down on homosexuality. By 1950, over 90 people were discovered to be gay and fired from the State Department. The Senate proceeded to investigate 4,000 other government workers. Needless to say, by the 1960s and 70s, the evangelicals were shitting themselves. With the rise of youth's free love, gay acceptance, and fighting for abortion rights, America was seemingly going to hell. The evangelicals' family values were pushed by James Dobson and his organization Focus on the Family. Dobson was a popular child psychologist and parental expert who pushed for more firm gender roles. He believed that through clear definition between the sexes and the household, children are guaranteed to grow to be heterosexual. He encouraged, pause for gagging, daddy-daughter dating, where fathers and daughters would have some bonding time so girls would attach romantically to the opposite sex. Girls were assigned the job of making sure men wouldn't stray by making sure she was constantly desirable. Boys were responsible for channeling their wild temptations and competition of conquest to financially supporting his family. The purity movement slowly started to grow throughout the decades. While the promise of Jimmy Carter being a born-again Christian excited the evangelical American people, he didn't seem to fight for enough of their conservative beliefs that they had hoped. Then came their poster boy, Ronald Reagan. While not an outspoken Christian, his ultra-conservative and pro-capitalist campaign was music to their ears. He was anti-abortion, pro-family value, and through his administration's response to the AIDS epidemic, possibly homophobic? Boy, I'm sure he was thrilled that one of his sons ended up being a gay MSNBC contributor. The idea of purity increased over time until it came to a head in the early 1990s. Purity campaigns started popping up all over the place. The evangelical community thought that culture was hypersexualized, and so they wanted to promote a, quote, pro-choice view on sexuality. The most popular purity organizations are True Love Waits, Silver Ring Thing, and Pure Freedom. True Love Waits was the one who started the contemporary abstinence movement. They were founded in 1993 as a part of the Southern Baptist Church. Those of us who are old enough to remember their most famous event was when 210,000 teenagers wrote abstinence pledge cards and nailed them into the National Mall lawn in 2004. Silver Ring Thing encourages kids to make pledges, and in doing so, they get a silver purity ring that they will eventually present to their spouse on their wedding day. Of the three organizations, they are the only one to receive federal funding, about $1 million. If that doesn't make your blood boil, I don't know what would. Thankfully, their government funding ended in 2006, and they now only depend on private funding. Pure Freedom was founded by Dana Grush, who tells the story of her regret of having premarital sex. This organization focuses mainly on girls. Evangelicals established these groups because they thought society was telling kids they couldn't control their sexuality. They chastised Planned Parenthood for promoting teen sex through giving out free condoms, combined with pop culture telling kids that all of their peers were having sex. To appeal to modern teens, abstinence programs started to steal rhetoric from liberal social movements. Evangelicals started to parallel the feminist movement by taking the same ideas but flipping them. 
both are rejected by mainstream ideals, both identify as victims in marginalized groups, and both have an interest in sexuality and reproduction. By combining the concept that society pressures kids into having sex and positioning themselves as rebellious, they start to become more enticing to teens. Because if there's one thing that teens refuse to be is outwardly conforming. This tactic makes it seem like the choice is fundamentally in the hands of the adolescent. But if you scratch the surface, there is a right and a wrong choice. While these purity movements don't tell kids not to have sex, they use, quote, rational arguments to prove that abstinence is a better choice. If you have premarital sex, you can suffer from emotional stress, be vulnerable to pregnancy and STIs. On top of that, when you finally do get married, you'll carry the emotional baggage from your previous sexual partners and miss out on a fulfilling sex life with your spouse. As you can see, the way the evangelicals talk about purity has a heavy focus on marriage. This is because they knew that if they changed their message from wait instead of don't, they would be able to attract newer pledges. Rather than creating a negative view of sex in general, they focus on the overly positive idea of sex within marriage. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of purity balls. They are basically large gatherings where girls attend with their fathers, who act as a placeholder for a spouse and participate in a marriage-like ceremony where the girls promise chastity until they find a partner. God forbid a girl has a period in her life where she isn't tied to anyone. Between God, her dad, and her spouse, she's always someone's property. Just so you guys know, up until the Obama administration, these events were federally funded. Yep. The money you worked hard for that you paid back to the government was, until recently, funding this bullshit whether you wanted to or not. Along with purity balls, these campaigns hold large parties with popular style music and testimonials from people who waited. Sounds a lot like the tactics evangelicals used in the turn of the 20th century, huh? Christine J. Gardner outlines the layout of these testimonials. First, the person establishes common ground, then they explain how they found strength and chastity, and then they project an image of a new happy life. These events also create a sense of community that both hold people accountable for their actions, but also say, if I can do it, so can you. For those of us who did partake in premarital sex, do not worry. Evangelicals offer the option of a second virginity. This gives the opportunity for people to ask for God's forgiveness and wipe the slate clean. This practice seems to contradict the concept of both the man and the woman staying chaste until marriage, but evangelicals see it as an effort to start a pure life and by doing so following God's plan. Despite a change in language to appeal to a modern world, a traditional view of society warrants equally traditional gender roles. Purity campaigns use the image of fairy tales to push their agenda. As most people can agree, classic fairy tale stories set a moral standard, both as a human in society, but also what real men and women should act like. Girls are poised as princesses who are waiting for their prince. This pushes girls to act like a princess so that she will attract a proper prince. This shows that Purity is not just about having sex, but acting pure. 
by acting and dressing modestly, it'll appeal to boys because he'll have to work for a girl's body. This concept is created to be female empowerment. You are a strong woman for not succumbing to your sexual desires. Boys are depicted as knights that are both a rescuer of women and also a warrior who battles obstacles to get to his future wife. With the medieval throwback of fairy tales, evangelicals also encourage courtship when one finds a potential spouse. Couples enter into long-term dating without physical intimacy that will ultimately lead to marriage. The couple is the one in charge with deciding the boundaries of their physical intimacy. Some don't even kiss or hold hands. Now, I know it may sound harsh about abstaining from sex until marriage, that's far from the truth. As with everything else, you have a right to choose what you want to do with your life and your body. My disdain comes from how this rhetoric has a severe effect on people, whether they're evangelical or not. In the next episode, I'll talk about the effects of the purity movement on current and former evangelicals' lives, how it seeped into American legislation, and how it's now being spread to the most impressionable parts of the world. Thank you guys for coming back. Once again, for the books and other sources I use during my research, go ahead and check out iosmpodcast.com. I appreciate you for coming along with me on this ride of knowledge, and remember, the start of healthy sex is learning about it. See you guys in the next one.